film runs through our veins and continuously makes us interact with it. I'm your host, Edward Frumkin, and this is Real Print. In this episode, our guest filmmaker Nick Robbins shares the valuable lessons he learned from his internship and where he finds inspiration to tell stories and cast actors. Finally, in today's concluding thought, I announce a new format change that will affect even-numbered episodes, starting with this episode, episode 12. Some portions are recorded on Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio and enjoy the show. Hi, Nick. Thank you for coming to today's episode of Real Print. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you again, Eddie. Yeah, it's nice to see you too. And uh, I always want to start off with what is your first film memory? This is going to be silly. And it always is silly when I tell people. My first film memory is actually The Lion King. And here's why. Because like ever since I was a baby, whenever I'm like having a bad day or like having like a rage fill um, tantrum, that film is like one of the only films that calms me down. And um, there was like one time in my crib, I forgot what happened, but my parents like have footage of it too. I was just like, I was just, you didn't want to bother me because I was having like the worst rage quit ever. And then all of a sudden Akuna Matata came on and I just shut up, turned around and I was just like in awe. But um, that's my earliest film memory. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's cool and wonderful to just let all the emotions away. Just Akuna Matata, what a wonderful phrase. And yeah, um, how or when, uh, if this movie inspired you or anything else to write screenplays or even make shorts? I said that film. And a lot of other films like um, in particular inspired me to like get in touch with my emotions and try to relate to an audience better. I mean, even though it's like a kid's movie, it deals with like the tough subject of losing a parent. It's just something I like am currently going through like three years in after losing my mom and just seeing movies like that, that kind of like help people get through. It's kind of something I kind of want to do and like spread forward myself. So it definitely inspired me to tell stories that people can relate to. But at the same time, people like Tarantino inspired me to like be different, like create content, whether from a cinematography or an editing standpoint or whatever, just to do something differently and like create your own stamp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is was there any um for anything that really um got you into filmmaking? more within a specific mode of storytelling well you can't really like get like a stiff joint in your hand from filmmaking unless you're doing something like unconventional but i remember when i first started like telling stories i did something like storyboard or like comics but after a while like i don't know if it was like a stress thing or like something my hand would just like jolt up and like lock and it created like this tight pain on my wrist i'm like I want to tell stories, but I don't know if I can keep doing this. And then I was like watching a film. I'm like, oh yeah, I could do that. <laughs> um, do you remember which movie really inspired you to like literally go make the movie that makes you do that, as you just said? 
Yeah, there was a couple. Um, one of them was Iron Man, and then the other was Inception. It was like around that time when those two came out. Yeah. Actually, technically, it was Iron Man 2, but I'm just going to say for the record, Iron Man is much better than Iron Man 2. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what specifically about Iron Man 2 and Inception just makes you like blew your mind or even just impressed with the production values that I want to literally make movies. More so with Inception, like the cinematography is like off this planet. Like I've never seen a film like it. And I was just like, there's so many cool things that they could do. I'm just like, how did they do it? And looking behind the scenes, it was just like memorizing to me. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh... I also want to dive into some of your early works, which is like at least great ideas, but we all have starting points somewhere with um, I Can Make You Dance and The Cure. Um, What inspired to make those two movies? I Can Make You Dance was like really modeled after like two friends I knew, um, Tori and Jay, who are the main characters in that. I was just looking for something to film for that class. And I'm just like watching them. And I'm just like, they could really have their own movie if they wanted to. And I'm just like, hold on, I'm a filmmaker. They're the talent, let's make something happen. And so with that, I was just trying to like find a story that they could like really like get into. And I was just telling them like, how would y'all feel like if one of y'all got powers, made the other do some crazy shit. And then the other like got the powers to and y'all got in a big fight at the end. And they're just like, they were into it. So that's how that came about. The title for that was really based on a song um, that my mom showed me called I Can Make You Dance um, by Zab and Roger. It's just a really cool song to me. And I'm just like, I'm going to name it after that song. And in case you didn't know who Roger is, like Roger Troutman, like, have you heard the song uh, California Love by Dr. Dre and Tupac? Mm-hmm. He's the guy singing the chorus for that. So that's just some background on that. But yeah. And then The Cure. Um, that actually came about a conspiracy theory my mom was telling me and I just thought it would be cool because it like was a good amount of time after she passed and I wanted to do something special for her. And um, that's how the cure came about. It was um, in regards to like the government, like having like certain, um, having certain cures to like certain diseases, but due to like infinite resources or like not infinite, but finite resources or like natural selection, if you will, due to that theory, like they basically keep it to themselves and like select and choose like, hey, when are we gonna do this? Or who like, who gets what, who lives, who doesn't? So I'm just like, that's a cool concept to explore. So that's how The Cure came about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, very great inspiration. And you talk a lot about how your mom has a role in many of your film going or making decisions. Like um, explain more of that impact that she had on you more in pursuing film? I said it's fitting because she has like a impact on pretty much everything I do. My mom, even in death is like my number one supporter. She's probably like the only person like ever since I was 11 and I told her what I wanted to do. She was always 100% on board. I was like, you're gonna be on the Oscars one day if you like keep up this dedication. Like, and you could tell she wholeheartedly believed it. And it didn't matter what else I wanted to do. like. She was totally down to support me, trying to like help me like to, to the best she can find the resources to help me get there. And to that, it's just like, she's too strong of a person to not dedicate something to. And it's definitely like, 
during like days where things seem hard or like difficult or like I just don't want to do anything it's definitely a great motivator to just like take that one push and just keep going or like find something to like rejuvenate that motivation and it's definitely something I hold dear to me because I don't want to let her down I feel like giving up or like not giving any sort of dedication is downright letting her down and going against her wishes and so for me those are all strong reasons why to like keep her as my um motivation and whatever I do mm -hmm. that's a sweet um story and I do also want to ask you about um about where do you find ideas uh, well outside of the two films we mentioned because like with the cure it was for Camus movie fest as I remember that was made in time when I was making my movie there like um whatever some projects like and doing with deadlines either with class or with that one week thing for Camus movie fest well for me it's weird because I'll just listen to two people talk at the very least I'll listen to other people talk or listen to someone something's telling me and my brain is just like what if this happened what if that happened like what would the outcome be and then whatever outcome my brain is like I'm just like write that down write that down we're gonna make that into something so that's usually how my film process goes um there are like a couple of like outside like scenarios like for instance like I'll try to judge it on like a story I once heard or make an adaptation but for the most part it's like a scenario that I just run into I'm just like what if we just go from there yeah and uh, about working with actors um how much improvisation that you allow the actors or have or do you try to stick with the the scripted dialogue as much as possible it depends on what's crucial to the story like if someone needs to know something through dialogue through actions through blocking like i tell them hey you need to do this and say it exactly like this outside of that i try to like create a fun set by letting the actors like get the general gist of what they need to say and when to speak and as long as they have that down like they can improvise the lines like the hell I care, uh, just as long as like the general gist, um, general points of dialogue, general blocking, general storytelling is met. And those lines, like I said, that needs to be conveyed is hit. Improvising is like A-OK -okay with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you have not just direct but also, and write, but also was a film cinematographer and editor. What's it like to have the movie in your head and getting all this footage and knowing like how it'll be instead of working with an, a different VP and editor. I just want to tell you, if you know exactly what it looks like and you know how it's going to be put together, it is 1000% easier in post-production because if you just go in not knowing what you're doing and then you see select piece, you're just like, well, damn, I don't know what I'm going to do at first. And then also, you might run into the problem like, oh, I wanted this shot, but you don't have it. But that's because you didn't plan it out. Versus like if you planned it out, which I normally do, and then you get all those pieces like for the edit, like basically filming for the edit, essentially, like it is a thousand times easier. It makes life a thousand times easier. So. Yeah, and uh, what's your approach with editing do you like to have a lot of 
quick cuts because I just recently saw Sundance movie Cathedral, which is a lot of static shots. The only camera moves was like a zoom in and out. And what's your approach in like getting a cohesive story within just um, the amount of a time of the time span of attention when we see either Jalen or then Tori in uh, I Can Make You Dance? I might be answering this question wrong, but the amount of time like for certain cuts or like certain shots, it really just depends on what I'm trying to like convey at the point. So like, I know for Lost in the Loo, we have a jump cut sequence of him rocking out in his room and they're pretty fast shots, but we're doing that. And also there's a clock in there. So you see like different time periods is passing like throughout the day. And the point of that is really just to convey like, oh, we're seeing like he's spending a lot of time in his room and but within a short amount of time to keep the pacing of the film going and also that's not really the main focus of the film but just to convey he's spending time in his room during that scene like rocking out like that's the purpose of that jump cut sequence so it really just depends on what i'm trying to convey exactly if that makes sense and i hope that answers the question it does there's no right or wrong answers film is very subjective of course I was hoping you would say that, but I was just sitting here like pondering what you were asking. I'm just like, I hope I have the answer to what he's saying, but yeah. Well, it's just that I'm not, like I do my best to keep it up with the flow and conversations about the way we approach certain aspects of film. And uh, also I do want to let you know that after working um, that, you mentioned Lost in the Lou, and what is Lost in the Lou? Lost in the Lou is actually my thesis project that I'm working on right now, but it's also a project that I hope to show like with a lot of producers I've been talking to that I recently networked with, such as like Leilani Downer, worked with the Freshman to Bel Air, Jerry Bruckheimer, producer of Pirates of the Caribbean, Bad Boys, uh, Beverly Hills Cop, just to name a few. But um, it's the most recent project I'm working on right now. And it follows an old coworker of mine when I worked at Lowe's. Um, when I first met him, we were just talking about like stuff we were into, like I do films, he makes rap music, but he has to put a lot of that to the side because he was supporting his family. Mm. And um, his youngest son, who happened is who was also a star in the film and is three years old, he was just like, Yeah, he's a handful. And I'm just thinking to myself, you sound like a good father. But what if you weren't? <laughs> and I was just like going from there. I was just writing out like this one crazy scenario, like Sean gets his like ticket to meet a producer, but his son's birthday is coming up and he totally forgets, but he has to do something. And he just loses his son in the city. And he's just like, uh oh, what do I gotta do? Because I have to meet with the producer and now he's asking me to do all this stuff, but my son is lost. So lost in the loo in a nutshell. Wow, that's mind blowing. and. I do also want to ask, like, how do you get into like spaces with Leyland Downey and Jerry Brookheimer that you mentioned? Because like I hear crazy stories like Cooper Rape of Cha Cha Reels Move, where he just sent a, a like an, a sh an early movie link to Jay Duplass. Like, do you go on social media and Twitter to reach out to that producer you want to meet? Literally, I kid you not. I just do whatever I can, whether it's going on Instagram or LinkedIn, 
or just talking to people be like hey can i meet or talk to so and so if you don't mind and just pray to sweet jesus later on that night it works out like that's all i do like there's like no secret for me i just do it and pray to god that it works sometimes it does but as a recent it's been working more often than not so praise the lord Ashata. praise the lord and <laughs> and also you were an intern at hollywood casting um explain what that experience is like it was actually really good for me because coming into Mizzou, I really didn't know much about like principal photography being on set or even post-production that much. I just kind of knew like bits and pieces of pre-production and um, I just kind of took it by air wherever I was. But actually going into that environment and being on set for a whole entire summer, it taught me like the basics of not only filming but also like just how to be creative how to be my own man like standing my own one on set and just being sure of my decisions as a director a filmmaker and just an overall creative contenter you know and um it was definitely the push i needed to take me to where i wanted to go uh, to take me where i want to go and um it's something i hope to keep building on even though i'm no longer with them but i'm definitely grateful for the time we had definitely for the grateful for the things they showed me the people i met were great and I haven't talked to them in a while, but we still talk here, every here and there, and I look forward to seeing each other again. Uh, I hope we cross paths very soon here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's great. That's a wonderful experience. And uh, I also want to ask you about working with a co-director, as in Akira, you worked with our classmate, Case and Suggs. What's it like to work with another director it's awesome especially if we're on the same page because it kind of does take a lot of the stress that you feel as a director um especially if you're usually used to solo directing but if you guys are on the same page and if you guys get along such as me and Kason or like me or Rowan like it is like the best feeling in the world they're both very talented guys and I am extremely best to like bless so um have been co-directing with them and it is definitely stuff I don't take for granted because as we see the end of our college career and go off into the real world into our own productions it's definitely something like if we ever get the chance again I was something I would definitely like to capitalize on mm -hmm. yeah and uh, and college is always a wonderful place to meet other careers what's it like to meet other like-minded individuals and also knowing that this is where this could be a lifelong uh, friendship along the way yep <laughs> <laughs> yeah friendship is really essential mm -hmm. and uh, how do you know that these this is the person that i want to make movies with because they could um, compromise like both of what we want to get out of. Not necessarily. And I say that because like, if you guys are on the same page from the get go and like be real with yourselves, like I remember like right as we started Lost in the Lou, I acknowledged Nene and I acknowledged Kaysen's, um upcoming film and also like his recent like television series that he developed, uh, My's Eyes. Like, I know y'all got y'all's own thing going on, but it'd be really great like to have y'all on set 
So with that being said, like, you don't have to feel obligated to be there all the time, but it's definitely like our last semester, like, let's go crazy. And so like, when we're all on the same page and we all respect each other, what we do both on and off set, it, it can work. It really can. It just, like I said, really depends on how well you respect each other and that communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I also want to ask you about, um, uh, like, I understand that you, with Lost in the Lou, you have some of a bigger crew than your earlier works. Um, what's it like to have a bigger, a, bigger, a bigger cast and crew too? Definitely a lot of personalities to deal with on set, which is not a bad thing, but it's definitely something that you need to be vigilant and on your toes about. Um, one habit I used to have is like my attention was very easy to like slip away from, but um, I would definitely say my focus has definitely became sharper. And especially like I said, pre-planning goes a long way. So like if I know who's gonna be on set on what day, what time and organize that way, who needs to be there, who doesn't, um, who I need to talk to, who I don't need to talk to at that specific time, who needs to be doing what, who needs to be manning what. It's a whole lot easier with like bigger crew and uncasts, but usually what helps is like, we've been doing production rehearsals and just actual blocking rehearsals beforehand. My goal is to at least have at least two for like bigger dialogues. And if it's something that comes natural, um, one rehearsal will do, but I usually have that one, um, one or two rehearsals with the actors, another rehearsal for crew, and things usually go smooth from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pre-production is very important. And I do want to even like, ask you about, um, about like I had a conversation with Sean about why he has his stuff on YouTube, on his YouTube channel, Purple Elephant Films, um, instead of submitting to maybe like a low level film festival, like why do you have your movies up on YouTube like right after you make them? Why don't I, you said? No, why do you put it on YouTube instead of submitting to like, a very local film festival like Como Shorts. Because when I first started, you got to understand your boy was broke. And a lot of times when you submit things, there's a fee. So one plus one equals two. So I couldn't really post anywhere besides like YouTube. But now as I get like my own funds, I'm really like trying to map out where I send it to, especially since like certain festivals like say, hey, you can't post on this site before you submit to us. Or they'll be like, yeah, you can submit here. But like, it's really depending on like where I want to send it into and what audience I want to show. So that's really what I'm doing now. But to start out, I, I really had no other option besides YouTube, no other financial option that is. Mm -hmm. But one other positive thing to show your friends, yo, I made this, check it out. Yeah. And oh yeah. Usually if I like want to show somebody though, I don't really wait to like post. I just kind of like show them a concept. And if I do have a video, like show them like when I see them, and be like you down or like do you like it but um yeah mm -hmm. and uh i do want to talk about reels because like it's very important for like any filmmaker to just show like the best word like what makes a good reel um demonstrating what you feel like is your best work whether it's from an editing standpoint cinematography whatever whatever you feel is the best work 
should definitely be on your reel. What also should be on your reel is what you're applying towards. So like if you're applying for a cinematography reel, like basic stills isn't really gonna cut it. Like showing your most like out um, cinematography practices or even like shots is probably ideal. And also making it too long is also a no. Like you wanna do it within a reasonable amount of time. Like I dare say like one and a half to like three minutes is ideal. But um, it's really just about like what you're applying towards, what you're trying to like show people like, hey, this is what I can do. Uh, this is what I want to do on your production and make it within a reasonable amount of time. Mm -hmm. How much of the, the material, when you have to make multiple reels for an editor or DP position, um, how much of the material overlaps in these two reels? Um, for me, quite a bit, because I didn't have that many projects under my belt at first, but as like the more projects come along, um, if they overmap, it's kind of a plus because like I don't have to fish for something, but like I said, I have to be intentional with it. Like, is this what I want to show my cinematography reel? Is it like good shots that I used on a gimbal, um, a dolly, a camera rig? And if it is with a good editing piece, then like, yeah, let's use it. But if it's not like, it's all about how you map it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like when you mentioned how that this is on a camera or a gimbal, do you label that like on the reel, like in the video, or just say in the video description, like when they're reading what's this video about? I should label it, but I don't. It's probably my laziness speaking in, but it's definitely something if you can do do that, because you're basically telling them, hey, okay, you know what it is, what you can do. But um, personally speaking, I haven't gotten into that, but it's definitely something I'll look into um, doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do also want to ask you about just um, like how to get out after college because don't, getting into this hectic industry is not easy. Um, I definitely say like, I don't have all the answers to that question, but the answers that I have seen like gotten results is like, definitely the earlier, the better. Um, and just being understanding, but also like, um, reaching out to producers and showing them like, hey, I understand like, um, what you got what direction you guys are trying to go towards. I'm just trying to better myself and then and, in and turn and um, in return, hopefully better this production like I definitely say that helps your chances of like landing a job out there and in a much quicker sense. Like I said, nothing is well, like we were kind of like um, hinting at nothing is really promised and it is pretty hectic getting in. But I dare say the earlier you jump on it, the better your chances will be. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you have any advice for um, someone who wants to just get on a set or just have a role in a film production? Um, I have a couple pieces of advice. Um, always remain active. You're always gonna um, experience failure, failure, but success is failure turned inside out and um, is definitely, definitely not a bad thing to experience failure. In fact, it just makes you better. And if you keep remaining active, you're going to get better. So just keep going at it. And another is like, learn as much as you can. Like if you um, 
if you see a production needs a gaffer, like it may not be directly with cameras, but it's gaffing. You learn more about like being on set. It gives you something to do and it gives you more experience on set. Like if you need to be a grip, be a grip. If you need to be an AC, be an AC. Like do as much as you can through all three, uh, through all three phases of production. And I guarantee you, your chances of landing a job will be significantly higher than someone who just like narrows down to like here, because everyone's trying to do that one thing. But if you're someone who shows like you're well-rounded, like uh, that's what people are looking for. And also you could be casted in a position that isn't ideal, but you could possibly work your way up to another position. Like you're just opening the door for yourself. So definitely get well-rounded on set. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh... That's very great advice. And uh, do you have any other advice more within like storytelling, not necessarily just like any advice for just um, other storytellers out there, not necessarily within film, but just other modes? Um, as far as stories go, I would dare say always have every question that you could possibly think of towards the story, have that answered, unless that's your intention to not have an answer. Like if you're ending a story and it ends up on a major cliffhanger and that's your intent, then that's good. But if you're if you have someone read over like your script or watch a rough cut of your story and they're always asking questions about like, why is this character like this? Or like, why does this character experience this at this time? Like always have the answers to those questions and always like show it case it in a way in that film so your audience understands that only makes your story better and shows what you're doing as like a storyteller but always have those questions answered and always be ready to answer it mm -hmm. yeah i just remembered that you have also been working in the camera department in other uh, student projects and also in cases, flowers for mom. Um, what is it like to be a DP for like a different director outside of yourself? It's kind of cool. It's collaborating because being a DP, you are kind of like manning the shots. You're like, but also since he was director, you're like telling his story through how you see fit through the camera. So it's like really cool collaborative like experience if you ask me. But um, yeah, it's definitely a cool collaborative experience when you're DPing someone else's project and working with their vision. Is like, what can y'all do together, like as both the camera operator and the director? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what's your approach to cinematography? Like, I understand with like the early works, it all had to be with natural lighting due to like the the situations you're at with an active college dorm. And a, but and a closed bell, so dark um, computer lab in the pier. What's it? What's your approach in uh, like other forms of lighting and camera movement? Well, first I look at the story. Um, what shots can tell what? What shots do I need to explain what? Like, um, if I need to explain someone's looking high up to somebody, I'm definitely gonna have a low angle shot that's aiming high on the person that's being looked up to, because they're that person of power. And I do that for every shot, every scenario. I think about what shots would work. And if it's multiple shots, we film that. And in editing, we go from there, which ones we'll use. But after that, we basically explore the um, mise-en-scene, the location that we're using and see what's possible and how exactly we're gonna capture those shots. And um, 
it's a really neat process. Like it just really goes into like pre-planning. So like pre-planning, like I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, but pre-planning goes a long way. So definitely the pre-planning is like the key to my cinematography, my shots and everything. I go forward with that type of dealing and filming. Mm -hmm. And I do also want to ask about does your approach to making films has been different since like like let me rephrase the question um how has your viewing of how has your approach to viewing films been different since being a, an active filmmaker because you now have all the tools and you'd be a little nitpicky about how this director did this instead of what you think it normally goes it's very much different because I look for like bits and pieces and like I try to like dissect their brains to see like why did they do this like beforehand I don't even think about it I just like watch it to watch it to get a story out of it but after learning like more about filming I'm just like why did this director do this like what was the significance in that or like why did he have his um post-production team edit the the film as such and then from there I'm just like how can I like take what I saw and use it for my future projects and put my own creative spin to it. And it's definitely something that took me like rewatching films like four or five times to do exactly to get like every bit of information I learned. But it's that like type of open mindset that it has created for me like ever since I've learned how to make film and like what goes into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's both a blessing and a curse once you know the terminology to make it because I'm like try to have different caps when I see the same movie and I really have to like need to see it multiple times one just as a critic or writing and a viewer the other one more as a filmmaker and try to see the motivations and understand like the budgets and knowing like the even at times the audience because there's just after being a screener for true falls and real abilities. I literally have to see movies like more how much they could do out of their budgets. And also, um, it does this stand out than other movies in a brilliant moving way that I didn't see as much before. Like it's just so many most for me personally, just making films also being like a curatorial team. And, and speaking of curation, before I let you go, is there a film that you like to recommend that's not popular to many people? A film that I would recommend that's not popular, like recommend like not watching or like to watch? Um, no, I want, uh, no, to watch. That's not really the most, like the highest box office movie or just not, like discuss as much in your close circles? Hmm. That is a good question. If I had to pick a film like that, I am going to go. Damn, that's a good question. Um, hmm. Dang. What's that old movie with um 
Dustin Hoffman and Glenn Close. It's about like how he has an affair uh, with his wife that's leaving town for the weekend. Um, and with Glenn Close. But she comes back and she's like this crazy psychotic. Oh, girl. that's Michael it's Douglas. A, is, yes, and, that one. In Fatal Attraction. Yeah, Fatal Attraction. Like I saw two years ago, just like the brilliancy of just like, even though I am sometimes questioned about the way women portray in that movie, but still, it's a movie that just has twists and turns, and uh, really wish that people could understand mental health instead of killing people at times. But it's still a wonderfully made throughout the time. Like even though with today's discussions, uh, besides that, while acknowledging that, it's still a great movie in its own in its own way. Like, what do you like about Fatal Attraction? Like, you can tell that it's frantic when it needs to be. And then the director knows how to make intimate shots. And I say intimate because it's not love. The thing about the attraction, it's not love, it's lust. And he does a really good job in conveying that through cinematography and not dialogue. But he knows how to capture intimacy and, like, that um, I just used it, like, two seconds ago. Like, in a platonic way. Yup. And he knows exactly what he's doing. And it's just that type of thinking like that makes like a good movie to a great movie. So that's definitely something I would definitely recommend to people. Also, the plot is darn near good. I did not see the ending coming. I mean, I guess it's one could argue that the message is kind of outdated, especially like how they kind of portray women in a way one could argue, but it's definitely something I would recommend and look into if you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for the recommendation and thank you for coming to Real Print, Nick. Thank you for having me, Eddie. It's nice seeing you again. Nice seeing you too. Today's concluding thought, Real Print's new format change. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Real Print. If you have been an avid listener of this podcast, particularly the guest interview episodes, you might have noticed something different about how episode 12 went. The past even-numbered episodes 2, 4, 6, 8, and 10 had the contributor conversation before the guest interview. Starting with this even-numbered episode and others such as episodes 14, 16, 18, 20, and so on, we'll have the interview happen immediately after the introduction. We will ditch the contributor segment for this and subsequent even-numbered episodes for good because I know how much time and respect I have for every guest. I want them to be heard as soon as possible and do not want their friends and colleagues to wait on me, Jonah, and Sean conversing. When I started with the odd-numbered contributor and even-numbered guest episode announcement when I launched Reprint, I did not fully honor that in the first 10 episodes because I still had Jonah and or Sean in each episode. Before the interview, I originally had the contributor segment for episodes 2, 4, 6, 8, and 10 because I wanted to get many topics and news in the industry covered extensively. However, I realized that this approach could hurt us when we are somewhat caught up with being up to date. The drawback is that we will burn out with brainstorming ideas when we release them rapidly, and I do not want to put too much pressure on Sean, Jonah, and Anisha's effort in completing the podcast segments. This move will also give us room to breathe in recording the podcast features as all of us have lives outside this venture. 
and I want to give each of us a necessary amount of workload for our respective positions. As I said earlier, this is a win-win for us and the audience. With one contributor segment a week, we will spread room for our coverage of the film industry's news to be out only on Wednesdays. You'll get to hear the talented guests on Fridays without the contributor segments delaying the segment. This move will be fully aligned with my and others' assumed definitions of the weekly contributor Wednesday episode and weekly guest Friday episode. I'm happy to make this change as early as possible instead of later. I'm proud for future listeners only to hear the guests on Fridays because I will not bury their tremendous thoughts deep in the episodes and will have it be up early after the opening minute. They'll create an average of episode running times down the stretch and I do not need to have as many 1 hour 15 minute long episodes down the road. I hope you understand this change and that's today's concluding thought. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Print. This episode's music includes Continuum Mutation courtesy of Kama and Shimmering by Rafa Orchestra courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. This episode is co-produced and edited by Anish Katu and Edward Frumpkin. Please check out this episode's notes and links as well as reviews, award and seasonal predictions and essays written by yours truly at realprint.org. That is R-E-E-L print.org. This is Edward Frumpkin signing off.